Chapter Three of Bonne Marie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susanna Mason. Bonne Marie: A Tale of Normandy and Paris by Henry Jouville, translated by Mary Neal Sherwood. Chapter Three: Dreams. The day after the fish supper, the old man departed as usual. Bonne Marie, having put into the daintiest order the little room she occupied in the upper floor of the house and watered the two geraniums which stood on the window-sill, cast a look at herself in the mirror which imparted to her pretty face a greenish tinge that was far from desirable, and then, with her work-basket in her hand, went down into the garden behind the house. Bonne Marie's work was a piece of tapestry of the most glowing colours. What did she intend to do with this tapestry, which was so little in accordance with the house in which she lived and with her daily life? "'I shall use it when I'm married,' she would say to the girls of her own age who questioned her. The occasional hours which Bonne Marie found it possible to snatch from the all-engrossing cares of the house were spent, thanks to this piece of canvas, in an enchanted dream. These brilliant wools brought back to her all that she had learned from the discreet romances she had read in her school, in regard to the life of the world and society. Carriages like those she had seen driving rapidly through Cherbourg on the days of the races appeared once more before her eyes. Again she saw the lovely toilettes worn by the fair Parisians in the casino or the watering-places, and the handsome men who came down in the trains of Saturday and Monday. Behind this dazzling phantasmagoria was hidden Paris, Paris, that city of the blessed, and it was in Paris that Bonne Marie longed to live. In Paris she would live in a pretty little house like those in which there are so many around Cherbourg, the homes of people in easy circumstances. She would have a carriage and horses, a hot house, and a garden. Here Bonne Marie cast a contemptuous glance at the poor little garden, planted with a few rustic flowers and many useful cabbages. She would have a wide avenue and a smooth gravel walk, shaded by magnificent trees that would always be fresh and green and ornamented by bronze statues, like a certain garden she had seen through the bars of a gate. Her husband would give her all these things, and many others besides. But where was this husband coming from? He certainly would not be found at Almondville. There was no question about this. Bonne Marie did not say this to herself, however, and her reflections were a little vague on this especial point. Some fine day the husband would of course appear. It was in the nature of things. They would meet, possibly, on the shore, and he would admire her at once. He would be struck with her distinguished beauty, and remain rooted to the ground. She, much agitated, would slowly pursue her way, and then suddenly turn around for one more look, and this look would decide the destiny of both. This future husband might be a painter with his palette and brushes. He would pass their house just about sunset one night, and he would see her, seated just as she was now, through the carefully trimmed hawthorn hedge, and he would stop to look at her. She would raise her eyes, and this illustrious being, this pride and hope of France, would feel that his happiness was there in that modest garden, between a hundred-leaved rose and a lavender bush. Bonne Marie, said a voice behind the hedge. She started violently. Had her dream come to pass at last? She raised her eyes and saw the well-known face of Jean-Baptiste. "'What do you want?' she asked with a burning blush, a blush of shame at the remembrance of the fancies and the enjoyment of which she had been interrupted. It seemed to her that the fisherman must be able to read them. "'Bonne Marie, tell me, why will you not love me?' Jean-Baptiste was leaning with both elbows on the hawthorn hedge, which was so strong and firm that it hardly bent under his weight. He was looking at Mademoiselle Beslin with those plaintive, submissive eyes, so like those of a faithful dog. 
poor Jean, she murmured softly, not yet quite awake to the real world about her. I cannot, but it is not my fault, nor is it yours. But what would you have? I am an honest fellow. I never did any harm to anyone. I am a fisherman, because I must be something. But if you prefer, I would go to town and go into trade. I could become a grocer, you know. No, no, not that, answered Bonne Marie quickly. Not that. Not a grocer? Well, just as you please. If you say so, I am ready to sell all I own here and go to Paris. This is what you want, Mademoiselle Beslin. I have found that out. You would like to live in Paris. I should like it too, I think. What would you do in Paris, my poor Jean-Baptiste? said Bonne Marie as she folded her work slowly. And you, what would you do there? answered the fisherman. A faint smile flickered over the girl's face. Little did it matter to her what she would do there. She would be rich and respected. Was that not enough? No, Jean, she said gently. Neither at Paris nor elsewhere could I love you. Have I not said that I must look up to my husband, that he must be my master? And that is easily done, I should say, replied Jean-Baptiste angrily. Your master, do you say? Perhaps you should like to be beaten. Bonne-Marie's gentle eyes flashed fire. No, no, she said. No man will ever beat me. But we understand each other so little, my poor Jean, that it is no use for us to talk, and this is precisely why I cannot love you. Unconsciously, she had fallen into the familiar thou, which in their class indicated not so much tenderness and affection as the fact that they had grown up together. This familiarity delighted the young man, and his eyes sparkled with pleasure as he answered, Books, Bonne Marie, have turned your head, and the day will come when you will realize the worth of some things you now despise. People who are born in the country and have lived there do not bear transplanting. It is this earth which nourishes us, and we must not be ungrateful. You are not made for Paris. You are in no way fitted for it. This is the place for you and where you ought to remain. You will see this for yourself some day. We shall see, repeated Bonne Marie, lifting her head haughtily. It is that fool of a coast guard that has put these ideas into your head. He is a fool and a traitor beside. You prefer him, do you? He told you he could have a good place, be promoted, and take you away with him. He wishes to go tomorrow with you to Beaumont. Who says so? asked Bonne Marie angrily. He says so himself. Does he indeed? Well, I presume he can hardly go without permission. And you will not allow him, then, to go with you? asked Jean Baptiste. She was silent for a moment, and then, in a tone of intense annoyance, she said, I do not love you, Jean Baptiste at least not with the love for which you ask, but I do not wish to hurt your feelings or offend you in any way. No, not for all the coast guards in the world. But when I say no, it is no. You can come if you choose. With you? No, not with me. I shall go alone because I do not intend to be your wife. But you can come after me and see for yourself how much love I have for this beautiful coast guard in his green uniform. Bonne Marie rose and turned toward the house. Are you going away? said the fisherman sadly. It is time to prepare supper. Good night, answered Bonne Marie. She took several steps and then stopped. It is very unfortunate, dear Jean, she said, that you should have taken such foolish ideas into your head, and if at any time one should tell you that I allow myself to be courted by one of these men, you may just tell him to his face that it is false. She entered the house, leaving Jean Baptiste both sad and happy as a dog is sad and happy when his food is brought to him, but he is not unchained.
End of chapter 3. Recording by Susanna Mason.